Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. Federal employees, representatives, senators, judges, political appointees, the president and the vice president of the United States all take oaths of office. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservations or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office of which I enter. So help me God. Federal workers often hear a career supervisor or a political appointee talking about loyalty to the agency or the boss. Well, the purpose of the oath of office is to remind federal workers that they do not swear allegiance to supervisors, agencies, political appointees, or even the president. The oath is to support and defend the U.S. Constitution and faithfully execute your duties. The intent is to protect the public from a government that might fall victim to political whims and provide a North Star, the Constitution, as the source of direction. It's a great idea and practice, but are people taking it seriously? I wonder. We expect our federal employees to be professional and trust that they will uphold the oath, but when we see citizens' homes being raided by the FBI for their political points of view, it seems to me that someone's oath has been disregarded along with the Constitution. Last month, the FBI used a major show of force to arrest pro-life Christian Mark Hoke with dozens of agents reportedly descending upon his home with guns drawn at Hoke's wife and his children looked on in horror. That was on September 23rd. It was a Friday morning. The FBI arrived at his residence in Buck County, Pennsylvania, began pounding on the door despite putting up his hands and Willingly cooperating, multiple agents pointed their guns at Mark's face as his family, his seven children, watched their dad be shackled and taken away. This show of force carried out by the Biden regime against ordinary Americans is an abuse of power and stands against the fundamental principles on which our country was founded, said Pennsylvania State Senator and Republican nominee Governor Doug Mastriano. He said that in a statement. The massive display by the FBI Holt claims there was like 25 to 30 heavily armed agents used to haul him away. That raises some serious questions as to why so much force was deemed necessary. And the whole thing stemmed from a minor altercation back in October 2021, over a year ago, with, with, with a volunteer at the Planned Parenthood abortion clinic in Philadelphia. The police were called, but they declined to pursue the case because of a lack of evidence. So Hulk, what happened was he was at the abortion clinic praying and ministering within his legal rights on the sidewalk, not on the clinic's property. Uh, when this fella, Bruce Love, he, an abortion clinic volunteer, he approached Hulk's 12-year-old son and began unleashing a string of vile comments and cursing at this, uh, this young boy. And when Hulk intervened and eventually pushed Love in order to protect his son, it caused Love to fall to the ground. And then the police were called and eventually decided, well, there's a lack of evidence of any assault taking place. 
and they declined to pursue the issue any further. But Bruce Love, he filed a criminal complaint against Hulk, but failed to show up at any of the court hearings, prompting the judge to just dismiss the case. Well, six days after the case was dismissed, Hulk received this target letter from the DOJ notifying him that he was now a subject of federal grand jury investigation. And Hulk and his attorney promptly replied to the notice, but never heard back from the government until September 23rd, Friday morning, when they came pounding on his door. Here's a picture of the uh, Mark and his family. Meanwhile, in the wake of the Supreme Court overruling Roe v. Wade, the DOJ seems less eager to punish those responsible for the wave of assaults against pro-life pregnancy centers, with no FBI arrests being made despite 60-plus attacks on crisis pregnancy centers. Oaths. They seem like they are a foolproof way to get people to do what's right. But as we all know well too well, people who take oaths are sinners and they can lie and break them. So generally speaking, as is the case with any and all aspects of society that humans are involved, we know sinful people, they really can't be trusted. Oh, way to start off very pessimistic, Pastor Rob. Sounds like we're in for another doom and gloom sermon. Hebrews chapter 6 has just been brutal. And now here we are, this introduction illustrating how flawed and corrupt our governing institutions are. Wouldn't it be nice if you could come to church and just get some hope? Well, I got good news for you. Yes, I is true that I'm always illustrating how we can't put our hope in people, but... Be that as it may, we have a great promise of hope as we close Hebrews chapter 6. Yeah, we did receive a stern warning. It's impossible to renew again to repentance those who fall away from trusting in Jesus for salvation. But the author is convinced this will not happen to his audience as we read last week in verse 9, Hebrews 6 verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Though we are speaking in this way, even though we're giving you this stern warning, we, we hope for better things. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full, the full assurance of the hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's convinced that they will be diligent and imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So I wonder who that was. Who's he talking about? Well, good question. The author actually answers, and he gives us an example. And here we are in our new, our new passage today, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could not swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for Men swear by ones greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an 
end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast in one which enters within the veil where Jesus was entered as the forerunner before us, becoming a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Abraham, Abraham is the example of what exactly? Well, he is the beginning of something big that God was going to do. And I think that's the point that the author Hebrews is trying to make. Now, I was tempted to go into an in-depth study of the life of Abraham. But the thing about Abraham is, well, just like most of our biblical characters and, you know, just like our illustration about the FBI, Abraham, likewise, is a flawed person. He made some very unwise decisions that resulted in conflict between his heirs that persist. Even to this day, the Jewish-Arab hostilities has its genesis back in the book of Genesis. Abraham had some really good moments, some mountaintop experiences, but then Abraham also made some really bad choices that if we were to study them, we would conclude... That's an example of what not to do. So if I go into a long discussion about the life and times of Abraham, I think we will lose the point that the author is trying to make. And that point is this, verse number 10. God is not unjust. Verse number 13. God made the promise. God swore by no one greater, and he swore by himself, saying, I will bless you and I will multiply you. God made an oath, and God will not lie. While our political politicians and people in these offices make oaths, and we're kind of skeptical that they can commit to them, God is not unjust. The Greek word here is adikos, means one who deals fraudulently, deceitfully with others. God is not that. Numbers chapter 23, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So this is the core issue that is at stake. When we, we read last week Genesis chapter 3 and we talked about the curse, Remember? And, uh, you know, the, the serpent came to Eve and said, you know, did God really say don't eat of that tree? And Eve said, well, yeah, don't eat of it or else we'll die. And then the serpent said, you won't die. God knows if you eat of that tree, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to become like God. You're going to know good from evil. And what kicked off the entire mess of sin and broken relationship between us and God was a lie. A lie that resulted in Eve not believing the word of God. So if I tell you something and you say, I don't believe you, basically what you're implying is you think I'm lying. And thus I'm a, I'm a liar. You can't trust my word. Now, there are plenty of good reasons why you ought not trust Pastor Rob. First of all, I'm very limited in what I know. 
my, my expertise is very restricted. And also sometimes I misunderstand the things that I think I know. And I may misquote or I might get confused and unintentionally give you some misinformation. So it's always good to do your own work and study and, and know it for yourself. Uh, also, I'm kind of forgetful. You know, people will uh, come talk to me on a Sunday and, and uh, have all these requests for me all, all Sunday long. And then I'll just have to say to people, I learned how to do this. I says, would you uh, send me an email and put your request in that because I'm going to forget all about this conversation before I get out the door. And I need it in writing. If you want me to do anything, you better get that in writing. And then y'all learned, well, don't even tell him. Just send it to Suzanne and get her to do it. <clears throat> and on top of all that, there is this uh, desire within me to be selfish and want what I want. And, and that motivates me to want to be dishonest. We, we are all tempted to be dishonest. We, we want to protect our reputation. We don't want people to know the bad things we're guilty of. Or sometimes we want to manipulate a situation so that we can get our way. We might skimp on the truth, embellish the good, and shh, don't ask, don't tell about the, about the bad. We, we have to make an effort to tell the truth, but, you know, I'm no different than anybody else. But when it comes to God, he always means what he says, and his word is true, and this is at the heart of the issue, the very core foundational principle of reality that is always being put to the test. God said things, declared things, swore things, and the adversary is working hard as he can to make sure those things do not come to pass. Why? Because if God's word is true and God's decrees never fail, then that means things that he said would happen to Satan are going to come to pass Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Specifically, what did he say is going to happen to Satan? We know. Revelation 20, verse number one. <clears throat> I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid a hold of drag the dragon, serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Several names there. That's all Satan. Bound him for a thousand years. Threw him into the abyss. Shut it. Sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until thousand years were completed after these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw the thrones and the that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who were beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark in his, their forehead or their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years is completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for a war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are. 
and they are tormented day and night forever and ever. Chained and imprisoned for a thousand years. After that, released for a little bit of time. Then he's captured, judged, and cast into the lake of fire for ever and ever. We know what God has decreed about Satan. He's the losing team. I don't want to be on that team. But that doesn't mean Satan accepts his fate. He has been working for about 6,000 years to prevent something, anything, anything that God has decreed from coming to pass. If Satan could get God's word to fail in one area, even on one subject, if he could, he could do that, it would prove that his fate is not sealed and his doom is not sure. So he's got one goal. Try to find a way to make God a liar. Now, lucky for you, God has not gone on record to tell you a specific thing that he wants to see happen in your personal life. And we often think, well, I wish God would just tell me what he wants me to do, and that would make my life so much easier if he'd just tell me who to marry or where to go to school or what job he wants me to do, then I would just know the specifics. No, no, no. That would not make your life easier. That would make your life a living hell. As soon as something is officially declared by God, it immediately gets in the crosshairs of the destructive forces of the evil one. A decree from God gets the full-on attack of the enemy. Case in point, the nation Israel. Almost 4,000 years of constant attacks and hostilities. So many empires all down through history have sought to eradicate the Jewish people and so many more persecuted them just in Bible times alone. A quick list is the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all tried to wipe them out. And that doesn't even cover all the neighboring nations that were always trying to attack them and, and persecute them. And since the scripture was ended in 100 AD, the Jews have had another 1900 years of struggling to survive. Now, just in the last 75 years, they have reoccupied their ancestral land and they have defended it, but they always remain hyper vigilant, trying to, to survive. Despite all that, they're still there. They're still thriving. Why? Because of what we read right here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. When God made a promise to Abraham, he swore by no one greater. He swore by himself, I will bless you and I will multiply you. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to cover everything today. Genesis to Revelation. We're going to get it all in the whole Bible. Genesis chapter 15. Starting in verse number one. So what's been happening here is Abram has left the Earl of Chaldees. He's left his father's land, and now he's, he's following God to this land he doesn't know. And God said, I'm going to give it to you. And so he's been roaming around in that area. If you look back at your, uh, your uh, Bible, anybody ever look at your Bible maps in the back of your, look at those? Those are really good. It'll, it'll show you like, okay, oh, look, there's the, uh, the world of the patriarchs, and they'll show you all these little places they traveled. You can see Abraham's travels. So anyways, this is partway through those travels. Uh, chapter 15, we pick it up. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, oh Lord God, God what, what will you give me since I'm childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have not given me no offspring, one born of my house is, is, is my heir. 
Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look, look towards the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them. And he said, so shall be your descendants. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he, he, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Abraham said, O Lord God, how may I know I will possess it? So God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two, laid each half opposite the other. He didn't cut the birds. The birds of prey came down to upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell on him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And after they will come out with many possessions, as for you, you shall go to your fathers at a win peace and you'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, your descendants I have given this land from the great river of Egypt as far as to the great river, the river Euphrates. All right, well, some of the details here are so very specific. Cutting animals in half and laying them out and flaming torches walking through them. And the scholars, when you read on that, will tell you that uh, this is about the processes of oath-taking and cutting covenants in ancient times. And they'll tell you what they think these actions represented. But the fact of the matter is, all that in Genesis chapter 15 happened over 3,900 years ago in a far-off place. And all that we really know about it is what Moses recorded about that event 500 years after it happened. And there's no commentary and there's no explanation as to why God did what he did. All it tells us is what was done and what was done in response. It was done to answer Abraham's question in verse 8. How will I know you're going to give us this land? How will I know? So here's the point. God spoke a promise to Abraham about what was going to happen. And then, because Abraham's like, how do I know? God swore an oath in the manner that people back at Abraham's day swore oaths. God manifested himself and physically went through the procedure to burn the fact in Abraham's mind and heart that God was going to do something specific through Abraham's family that would have eternal ramifications. That was not the norm. That was nothing run of the mill. That's nothing Abraham had ever seen or even heard of before. And God hasn't done anything like that since. That was a one-time deal that is still in effect when the author of Hebrews is talking to the Jewish audience and it's still in effect here in 2022. Can we just Try to get our heads around the magnitude of this weird thing here for a second. I get it. It was so long ago and so far away. Why would that matter to me here in St. Mary's County in 2022? 
Bear with me as I try to get you to feel the weight of this thing. God came and did this one-on-one, which is one guy 3,900 years ago, and yet it impacts all of time and eternity. It's vital information that you ought to know. You need to know it. It's all plainly recorded here and it's sitting in your lap. And yet for some unknown reason, it has fallen onto me to try to explain it all to you. And you don't have to go to university or some sacred, secret fraternity to learn about this. It's not some prestigious, illustrious potentate that expounds and extols these concepts to you. Man, the, the, the Queen of England just passed away last month, and as a subject of the British Commonwealth from the Dominion of Canada, Her Majesty's pictures hung in all of my grade school classrooms, and her likeness was stamped on all of our currency. She was regarded with honor and respect. And I called my father when I heard the news to speak about her passing as a way of reflecting how her iconic life had impacted just, you know, all of us. And it was all over the news. I'm sure you heard all about it. The whole world learned of it. And people all over the globe stopped and observed the funeral. And it's such a big deal. No disrespect. So I'm telling you, I'm, you know, Commonwealth citizen, all that, right? That was nothing. <laughs> that was a mere drop in the ocean compared to the importance of what we're speaking of this morning. And yet, there's, there's no Oval Office attention to this. There's no big announcement from the chief press secretary. There's no blockbuster Hollywood-style production to teach you this information. You're not getting any of this in your public school curriculum. It's just some mediocre middle-aged dude on the side of a country road here in St. Mary's County trying his best to bring your attention to it. One of the most fantastic events to ever happen in human history, and the, the onus is falling upon nobody me to impart this great occasion to you. How sadly anticlimactic that is for all of you today. Sorry, but this is all you get. However, if you contemplate that for a moment, it only proves the authenticity and the divine nature of the message. And it really is from God. Because I am a fulfillment of the word of God. You know that? According to that verse right there, God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of this world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see that? That's why you get me. And that's why we are such a ordained part of this eternal plan and why we get to have such a vital part in this most important strategy devised by God himself. We are the weak. We are the foolish. We are the base things. Nobody the devil would ever think of being useful or capable. And yet God, the Holy Spirit, through his omnipresence, can indwell each and every one of us and raise us up wherever we are to perform the will of God. That is the phenomenal expression of the power of God to do something that seems so insignificant, to swear an oath with one guy long ago, yet because God said it, it's now infused with his power and all of his eternality. That's what this oath means. 
Have I at least sparked your interest the slightest to understand what happened here? That God got off his throne and broke into our physical realm and met with one old fella in the middle of nowheres and swore an oath to him that would impact the whole of human history and everything that's happened for the last 3,900 years was a result of that oath and everything that's going to happen for all of eternity is rooted in this here oath. And Abraham did nothing to make it happen and he did nothing to maintain it or perpetuate it. He's been dead and gone for 3,900 years and yet God is still keeping this oath. Why? Because of two unchangeable things. Because God cannot lie and because God swore an oath. God staked his claim, staked his reputation. Dare I even propose the thought, God staked his very Godhood on this covenant. And if he can't keep this, then he's not God. And Satan, the adversary, the one who wants the position and the title and the throne of God, according to Isaiah chapter 14, where Isaiah writes how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend in the heights of the cloud and I will be like the most high. Satan sees and hears this covenant that God makes with Abraham and he says, challenge accepted. Let's see if God can keep this man and his descendants on this piece of real estate and see if he can make them a blessing to the whole world. See, the onus is not on Abraham to keep the oath. Abraham didn't make it. Abraham does nothing to maintain it. All Abraham does is what? Believes it. And he keeps on believing it, even though it takes Abraham and Sarah 25 years after the oath was given to finally have one son, even though Abraham was then a hundred years old and Sarah, who was barren, and then 90 years old, right? Not just barren. She never had one pregnancy in 90 years. Did she want one? Oh yeah, of course she did. But after 90 years, she's now way old. Sorry, 90 year olds. She's now way old, right? When all women are barren and now she conceives and gives birth. Abraham believes the oath. And he sees his son Isaac born. Abraham believes the oath. Even when God says, take your son, your only son of promise, to a mountain that I will tell you and sacrifice him there on the altar as an offering to me. And we see in Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, goes through that entire ordeal. It's a three-day journey with Isaac, climbs the mountain in Moriah, builds the altar, binds his son, lays him on there, raises the knife, and then God intervenes. And of course, we find out later on that Mount Moriah, where Abraham took Isaac, is the same mountain that Solomon built his temple in Jerusalem. And it's the same location where Jesus, the only begotten son of God, was crucified and sacrificed for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, a seed of Abraham, would be the fulfillment of the oath, the means through how all the nations of the world would be blessed through the line of Abraham. Verse, Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of the hope until the end so that you'll not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And Abraham had the diligence, the faith, and the patience 
to wait on God to fulfill the oath. And God staked his very nature on that oath. And he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself, as surely as I am, the great I am. I will keep this promise and perform these vows. In the same way, God desiring even more, verse 17, to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Abraham believed him. Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, the father of the audience of who the author is speaking to, is the one we are to imitate, who through faith and patience inherit those promises. Now, the author has already made the observation, as we've been studying for the last couple of months through the book of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is the exalted Son of God and the author of our salvation. Started the book with that, and these last days he spoke to us through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, and he is the radiance of the glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Continuing on with that theme in chapter 2, verse 9, but we do see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of his great suffering, death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone for it was fitting of him for whom are all things and through whom are all things by bringing many sons to glory to perfect the originator of their salvation through sufferings. Jesus is the one who conquered sin and death and the devil. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same so that though death might be through, so that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Chapter 5, in the day of his humanity, he offered up both prayers and pleas with a loud cry and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devout behavior. Although he was a son, he learned obedience to all things which he suffered. Having been perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation. For all who obey him. Jesus is the hope that is set before us. He is the fulfillment, the manifestation of the oath. He fulfilled the promises of God made to Abraham, which is why with his dying breath, he declared, it is finished. He finished it. He says in verse 18, that we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. What is that hope? It's Jesus. Verse 19, this hope, we have an anchor of the soul. Good choice of songs, Mr. LaJoya. A hope, both sure and steadfast, in one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, we're halfway through wedding season. We've done, uh, I think, two or three already, and we've got a couple more left to do. All kinds of different programs and order of services couples use for their wedding ceremonies. I've seen a wide variety of symbolic acts done during a ceremony to illustrate the unity and love that the bride and groom are 
pledging, uh, songs, poems, uh, a whole video production, right? Slideshows, foot washing, lighting of candles, painting of pictures, constructing a cross, blending of sand was the most recent one we saw. All very meaningful. Variety is nice. And yet all weddings get very uniform when it comes to the parts where the vows are made, the promises to love, honor, and cherish, and forsaking all others, be faithful and devoted, as long as I both, we both shall live. I do. The vows are pledged in the presence of God and the witness by family and friends. And then, as further confirmation of the vows, the rings are exchanged as a token of the covenants that will be kept, the vows will be kept and performed. You're writing this all down, Jarrell, right? You're getting this? It's like, well, I got to do all this. Real soon, two weeks, right? Two weeks, one week, week and a half. You, three weeks. Oh, oh it'll be here before you know it, buddy. All right, that's what you got to do, right? And so this is a momentous occasion to, to finally do that and to exchange those rings. And yet, how sad, too many times, as I've witnessed those, witnessed those vows, have I seen people, very all too very shortly, break them and violate those oaths. The greatest intentions of men so often fail. Well, thankfully, we do not place our hope in what Abraham did or what we do. Our hope is in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus endured the cross, suffered and died, rose again. The oath became the reality. And all we got to do is just take hold of it. Do not doubt his word as Eve did. Do not be deceived into rejecting Jesus. Trust in what God has done. He cannot lie. He cannot break his oath. He is the anchor that holds, regardless of the storms, no matter what life throws at you, no matter how bad you've been, how foolish you've been, how unworthy you feel, it's not what we've done. It's what Jesus has done for us. And it is he who enters within the veil. Verse 19 says, of course, the Hebrew reader would remember that there was this big, heavy veil, this curtain that hung in the uh, temple, separating the inner court from the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God would reside. It represented the fact that there was separation between God and man because of sin, because a lie was told about God and that man had believed it. And nobody could go now into the presence of God. Nobody could go into the Holy of Holies. Only, only the high priest, would, when he had the, the lamb's blood as an offering, but, but that, that blood was just symbolic. It was a representation of the oath that God had made. And God had Abraham act out the fulfillment of that oath with his son on Mount Moriah. He had him act it out as a way of showing him what that oath was going to entail. Of course, God then provided the ram in the place of Isaac so he wouldn't have to literally kill his son. But the ram all throughout the Old Testament, represented God's son. See, Abraham, your son deserves to die to pay for his sin. That's what I'm showing you. It, it is right and it is just for your son and all of mankind to be sacrificed for their sins. But Abraham, I'm going to send my son in the place of your son. That's what I'm going to do. And when that price is paid by the blood of my son, all of mankind can be free from their sins. And Jesus now, the great high priest, enters within the veil, bringing his own blood to God the Father, presenting his own blood 
as a sacrifice for our sins. And how long is he there, according to verse 20? Forever. This oath is eternal, and this is our glorious hope. Are you placing your trust, your faith, your hope in what God has done? Well, all you have to do is believe. That's what he said. Believe as Abraham believed. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to understand. And we stand in awe. And we stand in, in majesty of all that you've done for us. And, and you continue to do something that you started so long ago and so in a far off place. And yet you are paying attention to it and you are keeping it and you're presenting it to us and you're giving this promise to us that if we believe as Abraham believed, then we will be made righteous. We will be forgiven. We need that so much. We pray that somebody here today for the first time would be awakened to that fact and say, Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for paying for my sins. Please forgive me. Lord, help us to live faithfully, trusting in you each and every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.